Today we're going to read um, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you very much, Tom. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you, good to be back. If you're new to Redemption Arcadia in the last couple of weeks, you're probably wondering who I am. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, but I was gone for about 10 days and um, uh, doing my annual study break and some other things. I'll talk about that in a minute, but I wanted to wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, I have no idea if anybody here is related to anybody who has lost a loved one in the service of our country. Uh, If so, uh, we're sorry for your uh, loss. I do know there are many people here like myself who have relatives who have or do serve uh, our country right now. Um, And so this is a special weekend for us and and for my family. My father uh, was a gunnery officer on uh, the destroyer Farragut during World War II in the Pacific Theater for uh, three years. He was a lieutenant and served there for three years. And then we have two nephews who are graduates of the Air Force Academy, and one has his own F-18, and the other one is getting ready to have uh, one of those uh, eventually. So that's their plan, and so we, uh, we really appreciate their service as well. So um, uh, annually uh, in May, I usually get away, go to Wisconsin, central Wisconsin. Thank you. Um, I'm <laughs> Glad somebody here understands and appreciates Wisconsin. Um, anyway, get away. Uh, we, have a, we have a sort of an extended family, tiny little home up there that and, uh, we've had for the last 25 years, and so I get away, and usually it's seven or eight days that I do a study break. I only got four days this year. It was truncated because we also had an epic family wedding that was down in the camp in Iowa that I go to, that we go to every summer for the last 27 years that I teach at. Um, anyway, I'll talk a little bit. I always have to give a report on my study break. 
Um, but uh, this wedding was incredible. So this camp that we go to every summer in Iowa, some of you know, uh, we go every summer, and, I, and I'm, um, I'm the pastor of Family Camp 3 at Village Creek Bible Camp. So the directors of the camp for the last 27 years, Tom and Cammie Treptow, um, they have four children. Uh, two of them are in the Air Force. Uh, they're number two and number three child. Uh, their oldest daughter, their oldest child, their daughter, Andrea, was getting married a couple weekends ago, and she got married at the camp. And she and her new husband, Ethan, are two of the most connected people I think I've ever known in my life. They invited 800 people to this wedding. More than 600 showed up. It was so overwhelming that they had to have two receptions. Can you imagine? This is what happens in the Midwest. Those of you who don't know anything about the Midwest, you need to figure out the Midwest. Two receptions. They had a noon lunch reception. Uh, and the dining hall was completely full for that. And then they had the wedding ceremony at 2.30. Our daughters, Shelby and Darby, were both part of, their, of the bridal party. And then at 5 o'clock, they had a dinner reception, and the, din and the dining hall was completely filled for that. Their outdoor pavilion that they, uh, they built a little over a year ago um, was completely full, standing room only. It was absolutely mad. I thought Shelby and Zach's wedding was epic, but... This was a new definition of epic. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, okay, yours was epic in a different way. In a Phoenix way, okay? Thank you. I'm glad they're not going to be in the 1045 service. That'll be helpful to me. Anyway, so then, anyway, before that, um, study break. Uh, I go up there alone. I, I picked up Jackie in Milwaukee on the way down to the camp in Iowa. The camp's in northeast Iowa, so it's not a terrible drive. Anyway, so report on my study day, and the way I want, or study week, my study break, the way I want to report on that is I want to play a game called Two Truths and a Lie. Has anybody ever played that game? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make three statements, and one of them is a lie, and I want to see if you know which one is the lie, okay? So on my study break, I read four books. On my study break, I wrote four Bible, midweek Bible studies for this Messiah series that we have coming up on Wednesday nights that Nick and Tyler and I are going to do. And on my study break, I drank four cases of beer. It is Wisconsin, after all. So anybody want to take a guess at what the lie is? The four books, right. I read five books. <laughs> Thank you. No, I did not drink four cases of beer. Gee whiz. And I only read four books. I only had four days. Come on, man. All right. So anyway. Um, so let me, <laughs> maybe I should pray before we get into the scripture. Let's do that, okay? Uh, Father God, we do ask that you just open our hearts and our minds to this magnificent passage that Tom read for us. Uh, this culmination of this seven-week series that we've been in uh, is just terrific. And, and I just pray that uh, you would be the one uh, to carry the words and to apply the words to the hearts and minds of the people who are here today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last week of us doing Romans chapter 8, and it's the biggest chunk. And, and the reason why we have 12 verses today, and we've only had three or four or five in the other weeks, is because it's really hard to separate these 12 verses because they all just, Paul is building to something really crucial. I would say, essential for us. And so they need to be together. So we got a lot of work to do. Uh, one person has described these 12 verses this way. This passage is so dense, it is like trying to eat a whole cheesecake in one sitting. Uh, 
uh, I, I've, I sometimes struggle to get through one piece of cheesecake in one sitting, and so I can understand. I think that's, it's, that's an apt description. Uh, this series, these last seven weeks, have been about two essential things. Here's the first thing. Uh, the love of God poured out into us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, which redeems us and saves us and reconciles us to God, guaranteeing our eternity with God in heaven. That's the first essential thing that this series has taught us. And then the second thing is this. It's how this salvation in and by Jesus fills us with the Holy Spirit. This series has been primarily about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and, and how that Spirit ministers to us and for us and, and with us. The Spirit gives us life. The Spirit indwells us. The Spirit adopts us. And then in these last two weeks uh, while I was gone, we learned that the Spirit gives us a hope that is guaranteed and the Spirit prays and advocates for us. And now today in verses 28 through 39, we see that the Spirit gives us victory in all matters of eternity. And primarily... What we're looking at is that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of the finished work of Jesus. And that is good news. So let's get started. And I will tell you, verse 28, we have to do that one all by itself. There's a lot that we got to look at at verse 28. Let me reread it for us. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. This is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, but I cannot tell you how often I hear it misquoted. Uh, usually it's quoted this way. Well, you know, Romans chapter 8 says that all things work together for good. And that's about it. Uh, you're missing three important parts of that verse. Three really important parts that will misguide you if you would think that it's just all things work together for good. Here they are. Number one. Paul says, and we know. Paul is saying this is a fact. This is not in dispute for the follower of Jesus. God's sovereignty and authority are not in question here. You can count on this. And because we can count on this, because we know this is a fact, we are filled with hope. Here's the second thing. Who is this promise for? It's specifically for a certain group of people. It's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not for everybody. It's for those who are in Christ. Uh, I remember Tom, years ago, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, this is maybe 25 years ago, was teaching on this verse in a Bible study, and he made this point. He said, this, this promise is not for everybody. It's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And somebody got up and walked out angry. They were mad that Tom pointed out that this is only for those who are Christ followers. But that's what Paul is saying here. It's not for everybody. So two parts, loving God and called according to his purpose. Loving God, knowing God, submitting to God is the primary call of those who are in Christ. To have the, quote, benefit of God working all things together for good, we need to be followers of Jesus, seeking to know Jesus and submitting ourselves to his will. And then called according to his purpose. So God's purpose is not just that we respond affirmatively to the gospel call of Jesus Christ, though that is of paramount importance, but also that we then enter this relationship with him, submit to him, do his will, and then that leads us, we'll see in verse 29, 
to be conformed to God's image. In other words, this is the beginning of that big word called sanctification. Now, we're going to talk about sanctification in our next series that will start next Sunday in 1 John. So we'll talk more about it then. But there are several different ways that you can define sanctification. Here's one way. Discovering the extent of sin in our lives is one way to define sanctification. When I came to Christ 36 years ago, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I had sin in me, and that's why I needed Christ. I needed this supernatural intervention for salvation in my life to reconcile me to the Father. But at that moment, I really didn't know the extent of my sinfulness. But through God's grace, I know some of you are like, this is really part of his grace. Yes, it's part of his grace. God began over the years to reveal more and more and more. And after 36 years of walking with Christ, I am still discovering the extent, the depths of my sinfulness and how God is working in me through that and how he's reconciling me and he's teaching me in that. And that is part of his grace and part of that uh, glory. And so that's what sanctification is. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. And then the third item that people usually miss is God causes this to happen. Now, in the ESV translation, we don't have the words God causes, but in several of the other translations, for instance, the New American Standard translation, it specifically says, and that's more of a, much more of a literal translation, it says God causes this to happen. God is sovereign. He has the authority. He's the creator of everything. And so he's the one that works this all together. He has the authority. Uh, You know how you and I are always trying to control situations, trying to control outcomes, trying to control others? I guess none of you suffer from that malady. I guess I'm the only one who does. It's kind of a joke, though, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it. You see, we don't have the sovereignty or the authority to be able to control situations the way we'd like to be able to control others the way we would like to, to be able to control outcomes the way we would want. Yet we keep trying, and we assure ourselves that someday we're going to be able to figure it out and be able to do it right. And, and not only, here you go, not only, this is what I found in my life anyway, so I figure it applies to many of you. Not only do we get frustrated with trying to control others, control outcomes, control situations, and discovering that we can't, Have you ever noticed how others get frustrated with you trying to do the same thing? They get frustrated with you trying to control them. They get frustrated with you trying to control their situation or whatever that is. Other people get frustrated as well. I heard one person say it this way, and I think it's true. We are all control freaks, but some of us hide it a little bit better than others. Okay? But it's only God who has the authority, the sovereignty, and the the creativity to rule over everything. And then there's one last thing. I said three things, but there's one last thing. It's not that we miss this, but we we need to define what a particular word means here, and that's the word good. He works everything together for good. We've got to define what good is. It's the Greek word agathon, which literally means that which comes from God. So, you know, there's this story of of this guy that comes to Jesus in the Gospels in a couple of different places, and he, and he comes and he, and he says, good teacher, or he says, what good work must I do to be saved? And Jesus looks at him, and in Jesus' uh, normal way, he, he answers the question with a question. Why do you call me good? Why do you ask about what is good? You need to know that only God is good, 
Right there, we got to have that understanding of what good is. It's God's understanding of what good is because only God is good. God is holy, set apart. He is not sinful like we are. So the problem we get into with this verse is, well, if he's working everything together for good, why is my life so challenging, right? Well, because he's working in the midst of that for something that maybe you just can't see yet. It's amazing how we all think, all of us think, that we're the wisest and best purveyors of what is good. God calls that pride. He calls that arrogance. He calls that hubris. And he calls that self-righteousness. All of us have blind spots. All of us do. And, and, and it's, that's, I know that's not good news because we don't like those blind spots. Blind spots are generally what other people know about us, but we don't know or we choose to deny to know it or do we choose to act like it doesn't exist. But it's what other people know about us that maybe we don't know. And we run into that. And those blind spots are part of the corruption of sin in our lives. So we think we know, for instance, what love really is. By the way, in 1 John, we're going to talk about, a lot about what love really is. Because that word is used a lot in 1 John. So we think we know what love really is. But most of us just think it's a feelings-based uh, emotion that is not rooted in sacrifice, commitment, covenant, and service. That's what genuine love is. We think that our jealousy is always righteous. You ever been jealous? I have. And I'm sure that my jealousy is a righteous jealousy. But jealousy, just like love, is another emotion that's influenced by my selfish, self-centered desire. And so what I discover from reading Scripture is that only God's jealousy is one that's right and correct and good because God's jealousy is rooted in what's best for me, not what's best for Him. My jealousy is also rooted in what I think is best for me, not what's best for the thing I'm jealous about. That's the problem. So his jealousy is righteous and pure because he's not sinful. So we think we know what good is or ought to be. But again, our notion of good is always tainted by our own self-service, self-serving desires, our own... Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, described it this way in Latin, in curvatus in se, we're always curved in on ourselves. We have one point of view, and that's a point of view from our, our spot, from our point, and that's it. You know, just to give you a little quick pop culture reference that I think is more valuable than most people realize, I really do appreciate uh, a lot of what the, Bruce, uh, the movie Bruce Almighty pointed out. I really do. How, what, nobody's seen that movie or something? Okay, I just, I saw it again recently. It was on some channel. And, and I got to tell you, it's so funny. Bruce was pretty sure he could do a better job at being God than God could do. And yet Morgan Freeman certainly put him in his place and helped him figure that out, which I appreciate Morgan for his ministry in that. Um, okay, so maybe not, maybe not Jim Carrey and Morgan Freeman. Here you go. Here's a perspective from the prominent New Testament scholar Douglas Moo, and I find this helpful. By the way, that's his real name. Yes, Doug Moo. Okay. Here's what he says. We must define the good that God is working to produce for us in his terms and not ours. He is God. We are not. God knows that our greatest good is to know him and enjoy his presence forever. He may then, in righteous pursuit of this good, allow difficulties and griefs of all sort to afflict us. Our joy will come not from knowing we will never face such difficulties, for we most certainly will, 
but that whatever the difficulty, trial, or suffering is, our loving Lord is at work to make us stronger and more resilient followers of Jesus. You read through Scripture, there is nothing in Scripture that tells you that when you're in a terrible, miserable, suffering uh, trial or situation, that God is just going to take you out of it. That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that He's faithful to walk with you through it. That's what Scripture tells us, that He walks with us. Now, coming in verse 29, when we get there, is the fact that those who are in Christ are being conformed to the image of God's Son. And the scholar Thomas Schreiner asserts that that too is part of what God's definition of good is, that we're being conformed to God's Son. So in reviewing verse 28, before we move on, we find that God is sovereign, and we find that He is good and that He's the purveyor of all that is good, and we find that He works everything together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And as a result, we now have a hope that cannot be compromised, surpassed, or even understood by the rest of the world. We have a hope that is not understood by the rest of the world. So then the next two verses, 29 and 30, set up the glorious passage of 31 through 39 that everybody loves. That's what we call the what can separate us from the love of God passage. But we have to do 29 and 30 first because without those verses, we don't have 31 through 39. We just don't. 29 and 30 are the foundation, so let me read those first. Paul writes, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. People love Romans 8, 31 through 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. They love that. But many of those people who love 31 through 39 are deeply troubled by 29 and 30. They don't like 29 and 30. But if we reject verses 29 and 30, we do not have 31 through 39. That's just a fact. God, God has foreknown all of this. And I'm going to explain what some people think that means. But many have tried to explain 29 and 30 in terms of God simply knew beforehand how things would turn. He just knew beforehand. He had an instinct, or maybe he saw the video. He just knew beforehand. Okay? That's it. He had, he had no control over the outcome. God passively sits by while all of this plays out, but he's already seen the video of how it would play out. So he new. Well, if that is all it is, if God is just an observer of what is happening, the rest of verses 29 and 30 make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Paul writes clearly and unequivocally. He picked his words very specifically to let us know that God is active in this process. He is the actor. He is the one that is doing the work. He actively predestined those whom he foreknew. He actively called those who are predestined. He actively justified those he called. And he actively glorified those that he justified. Every verb in these two verses is clear. God acted. God did all of the work. And by the way, that is good news. Because if it were up to us, as some good intentioned and I believe misguided people think, we're going to fall short if it's up to us. 
Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, I, I've used this illustration before. I love it because it's so simple and it helps us to understand. Um, Tom, anybody ever go through grammar school and you're in an English class and you diagram a sentence? Remember that exercise, diagramming a sentence, okay? So you have the verb, which is, the, that's where all the action of the sentence is. And eventually you come to what's called the direct object. What does the direct object in a sentence do? Nothing. Just receives. It just receives the action, right? So Tom says, I'm the direct object of God's grace and salvation. You are the direct object. You just receive God's active favor in your life. That's what you do. Isn't that good news? Some of you are troubled by that. I can tell by the looks on your face. That's good news. You didn't have to do anything. Because if you had to do something for your salvation, guess what? You might screw up and lose it. We are not holding on to God. He has got us in his grip. He did all the work. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. This is good news. This is not something that should trouble us. You look at verse 33, looking ahead. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's not a typographical error. That's not a mistranslation. That is a clear and direct reference back to verses 29 and 30. Nobody can come between you and God because God is the one doing it all. Who can stand against God? No one. What can stand against God? Nothing. We can't ignore this or explain it away. Only God has this authority and power. Again, we should be glad this is good news. And two important things to know about that word translated foreknew. We need to grasp this. First of all, the word specifically describes a covenantal affection. A covenantal affection that one has for another. God has a covenantal affection for those who are in Christ. That covenant can't be broken. And second of all, this word also stands in contrast and antithesis to the biblical word reject or rejected. And this word is used concurrently in the Old Testament with the word elected. Again, good news. So here you go. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus says this, a pretty famous verses. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and weighed down. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and here you will find rest. This is one of the things that Paul is trying to get at, actually, in this verse, helping us understand that, that we don't have to do any of the work. We're just called and saved. Okay? In, in Matthew 11, the reference to the yoke was that every rabbi, every professional religious person, every teacher... In those days, and Jesus was a rabbi, they had a corpus or a body of teaching that was metaphorically fastened to each of their disciples, kind of like yoking two beasts of burden together to be able to plow a field. If you were following a rabbi or a teacher, you had to submit yourself to everything that that rabbi, that teacher's yoke, taught, demanded, all the rules, all the laws, everything. You had to know it, you had to learn it, you had to teach it to others, and you had to submit to all of that. And it was long and difficult. What was Jesus' yoke? Anyone want to take a guess? One word. His yoke was grace. That's it. Unmerited favor. Come to me, all of you 
who are weary, weighed down. You're burdened by all of this stuff. I will give you rest because I've already done all the work. I am giving you grace. I am giving you mercy. I am giving you unconditional love. Come to me, and here's where you will find rest, because it is finished. Jesus declares that on the cross. Good news. So we follow Jesus out of joy and gratitude and rest. And the beauty is that we've been chosen for this great blessing. It's amazing to me that the word predestined is a dirty and wicked word for so many Christians. It's a good news word. It's good news. Something to celebrate. Why? Well, here you go. Here's why we get to celebrate that. Verses 31 through 39. I'll reread those. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Nobody can because it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What these verses describe is simple. The fact that God has actively done all of this in verses 29 and 30, we live with a guaranteed security of our place in the kingdom of God, in the heart of Jesus, in the center of God's perfect love, on the right side of God's justice and history, and in the joy of God's mercy. And none of these things can be taken away from us. For the believer in Jesus, these things are secure, they are sure, they are guaranteed, they are fail-safe, they are certain. So as we wrap I just want to go a little bit deeper on two other items that we see in these last nine verses. Number one, what's that Old Testament reference we find in verse 36? Well, it's from Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a prayer and a song about the unexplained suffering and trials that you and I go through in this world. Does anybody ever suffer unexpectedly or in an unexplained way? You can't figure it out? Yeah, all of us. All of us do. Okay? So why does Paul quote that here? Again, it's pretty simple. Paul is pointing out that even the tribulation and the suffering we experience in this world cannot separate us from his covenant love for us. When we go through suffering and trials, one of the things that we do, we just try to do this. We try to end it or to mitigate it or try to like cleverly skirt around it in some way, try to avoid it in some way. But what we find is in the midst of all that trying to manipulate, trying to control, all the things we do to try to eliminate or mitigate the suffering and the tribulation often just pulls us deeper and deeper into that suffering and tribulation. 
If we would just do what God calls us to do in the midst of that, it would go much better. But we try to fix it ourselves. And as we try to fix it ourselves, we actually get further and further away from God. And then we start to get angry with God or we've decided that we're not good enough for God. I was meeting with somebody this week and this person is going through one of the worst situations I could ever imagine for somebody that has to go, and, it, and it's not this person's fault. This is unexplained suffering that just not their fault. And, and it was interesting to me that their initial thought was, am I just not good enough for God? What have I done that has made God angry with me to do this? Nothing. You're following him, and I know it's hard, and he's with you in the midst of this, but you didn't do anything. Somebody else. This is the fallenness of this world. This is the fallenness of the people that you know. It's their sin in this case. But God is with you in the midst of this. But, but it was amazing how this person, their first thought was, there's something wrong with me. No. No. But God is with you in the midst of this. Paul is saying that even these trials and tribulations won't separate us from God and the infinite, never-ending, overwhelming love that he has for us. Here's the second thing. There is one more thing that has proven effective in potentially separating us from the love of God. I've seen this so many times, I can't tell you. And it's, it's accusations. It's accusations. That's what verse 33 is all about. When charges are brought against us, we need to remember that God still loves us. And charges will be brought against us. And really, I'm not even talking about the charges of other people. Of course, that's going to happen. That's just part of life. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. So here's what we mean about that. I know that I talk a lot about how sinful we are, how we're bent towards self and our fleshly desires. And the reason I talk about that is because that's the story of Scripture. Read Genesis 3. If you want to understand the rest of the Bible, it would be helpful if you understood Genesis 3, okay? Why did God do He didn't. We did. God created paradise. We're the ones that screwed it up, okay? So the reason I talk about it is because we need to understand the bad news so that then we can receive the good news. I didn't come to Jesus until I understood the bad news about my own nature. That's that I was rooted in sin. Okay. And so I talk a lot about how we're bent towards that, but I also talk a lot about how we should be thankful that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God has saved us from the eternal consequences of our sin. But here's something else that's part of that fallen human condition. In the quiet of our heart, you and I often listen in the unhealthiest ways to the condemnation that Satan has for us. Because he's there. He's there. And here's how Satan works, and he's pretty effective at it. When you and I are tempted to sin, he's right there with us, chirping in our ears. He's encouraging us, telling us it's not going to be any big deal. You're never going to get caught. Maybe not. And by the way, God's never going to know it. Look at all the problems in the world that God has to deal with. He's not, he's not worried about what you're doing. He's never going to notice what, what you're doing, stuff like that. And so we, okay. And we go through with it. And then what happens almost immediately? Okay? Satan is right there with us, chirping in our ears, accusing us of falling short, accusing us and indicting us about our unworthiness, saying, see, you're not good enough for God. 
You're a godly person? What makes you think you're a godly person? You just, you just sinned. How awful you are. You're, you're worse than anybody. You're Charles Manson. Only worse. Okay? Satan is right there accusing us. Here you go. You can't win with Satan. But you need to remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's the promise of Scripture. Satan is always one step ahead of us, but God is ten steps ahead of Satan. And that's why we need to follow him. So Paul reminds us that even in this, even in these accusations of weakness, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is enough. He reminds us that even when Satan is close at hand, manipulating us with his schemes, God has us. End of story. See, that's the conclusion and consequence of this seven-week study in Romans 8 and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the conclusion. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that truth is the perfect bookend for the first verse in Romans chapter 8, which says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, what great news Romans 8 is for us. Thank you so much that Paul wrote this by the power and the leading of your Holy Spirit. God, we are, we are the, the beneficiaries of all that is good from you. So we should just thank you. We should praise you. We should live in gratitude and joy and as Jesus says in Matthew 11, we should live in rest. So God, help us to do that. Give us the courage to do that. And help us to just preach this good news to ourselves every single day. I may be a sinner falling short of your holiness, but your son has saved me. And as a result, I can live in confidence of who I am in you. We thank you for that and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.